Hello and welcome to Behind the Buyouts, the deals podcast where we sit down with a deal maker and drill down on their buyouts and venture capital transactions. For our first podcast of 2021, we're talking to Sajin Palai, managing partner of Season 2 Ventures. Sajin, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Steve. Pleasure to talk to you today. Great. Before we get to the topic of the role of India in today's tech scene, let's get listeners a bit more acquainted with Season 2 Ventures, which has raised a $100 million venture capital fund. You started the firm recently after 20 years leading UST Global, a technology services company that you built from the basement level startup to more than a billion dollars in revenue. Sajin, why did you decide to launch Season 2? Steve, while we were building UST as a startup, all the way through fundraising to taking the company to market globally, up to 25,000 employees. That scale-up gave me a lot of insights as to how can we really have a startup from the ground up all the way to a scale-up, and how can you get into global 500s or global 1,000s? There's a lot of valuable experience as an operator. During the time at UST, we helped a number of companies in Silicon Valley and Israel and around the world. We would source them, package them, create an innovation network and take it to companies, Global 500s. And this experience taught us what the challenges of small startups are vis-a-vis how do these startups get into these large companies? How do do they execute and how do they succeed in these large companies? There's big insights and learnings that happened. So when I retired from USD, one of my passion was to help the entrepreneurs around the world. And I thought that this experience combined with our capital allocation would give a distinct advantage for the entrepreneurs. So that encouraged me to kick off season two as a venture firm. So does season two sort of refer to your second major chapter? Like UST was the, was season one and now you're in season two? That's exactly right. Okay, I That's figured exactly that out. Right. Okay, great. So India does intersect with Silicon Valley on a couple of levels. First, you've got engineers from India that start up companies in the U.S., and then you've got companies with outsourced operations in places like Mumbai and Chennai. Sajin, what's your take on the history of the tech sector in India and how it intersects with the U.S.? Oh, that's a great question. You know, if you look at Indian history of technology, it's really started in 1967 with the formation of Tata Consulting Services. And along the way, since then, there were a number of regulatory improvements like SEEDS in 1973, Satellite Connections, VSAT in 1994. And a variety of both regulatory and technological innovations ended up today, if you look at the technology sector, Steve, we have about 180 billion of exports from India annually on software, about 40% of GDP, 30% of all exports in India, and 25% of the workforce work in technology or technology-enabled sector. So it's become a substantial sector. But if you really look at the progress of the, you know, sort of the digital stuff. And if you think about it, its first generation was information technology companies. This is the TCS, is the Infosys, the Wipros, and the companies that you know. The second generation was driven by consumerism in India, right? The change of policies, the access of capital enabled a large number of middle class in India to demand services. So, it gave rise to a variety of unicorn startups like Zomato, Swiggy, Paytm, and Flipkart, and Ola, many of the companies you would know. The third curve that we are in the middle of really started by initially, not just from the information technology sector, but R&D outsourcing. So if you think about Texas Instruments, GE, Cisco, Adobe, all these companies outsource their R&D or place their R&D centers in India. And this research and development uh, workforce 
helped us kick off a bunch of startups, including the B2B. So if you look at the current B2B, they are predominantly deep tech. They are IP-driven innovation. And along with this incredible B2B push, the other factor that has happened in the recent years is the Digital India push. If you notice, India has one of the largest initiatives in the history of humankind to identify a citizen with Aadhaar. India also created what is called as India Stack Infrastructure that has got a variety of digital India uh, capabilities. India has entered Digital Sky to create connection and connectivity across India and Digital Locker for every citizen. So all these efforts has driven entrepreneurship, investment, and talent to participate in B2B startups. So we really see this going to a next level. Just in the last year, the amount of VC fund committed to Indian industry had touched about five to six billion. I see that going to 10 to 20 billion in the next three to four years. So we are on a, we are on a tear. <laughs> so that's good to know. I mean, the thing about India is that people in India already speak English. So there's a kind of a natural link to the U.S. there compared to, say, China. But what's the difference between India and China in terms of their influence on the U.S. tech scene? I mean, we've had TikTok as the defining app of 2020, and I guess that started in China. But I guess you can't count India out. I guess it's more in the B2B sector where it might not be quite as visible to everyday people. Well, India's influence in Silicon Valley is profound and probably deeper than the Chinese influence. The first and foremost is you named it. The amount of Indians working in tech sector, particularly in Silicon Valley, is massive. But that's not the same level of success between China and the U.S. So there's clearly a difference. The second difference is India is the biggest open, untapped digital market in the planet by far, right? Think about it. Only 50% of Indians are online today. That means that there are 50% of Indians are dark. You can imagine the max potential. This 50% is 650, 700 million people are connected to the internet. And that's roughly twice the population of the entire country of the United States. So the market is huge. The other important thing where India intersects with the Silicon Valley, distinct from China, is the focus on intellectual property laws. The trust that major corporations have in India to build their R&D centers, software, et cetera, has been going on for 60 years. There is a long history of trust, but that's another major factor. The next thing is the strict diligence the government has now brought in in terms of using personal data, which is a huge problem for startups around the world. As you know, India is now advanced. And the other thing is just the sheer age of India as a country is 27, which is almost a decade younger than the Chinese. So all these factors make India very, very, very attractive intersection with with Silicon Valley. While China is a little different, while the market is very significant, you know, most of the companies, there Alphabet, Tencent, Baidu, Huawei, it's somewhat closed and it's very Chinese-centric growth. So it really doesn't give a lot of capability for the global companies to collaborate and take advantage of the Chinese market. That's the big difference. Okay. So just kind of mention some of the success stories out there. We've got, I mean, there's a lot here. Um, some of the bigger uh, uh, India uh, success stories, we've got Zscaler Inc., AppDynamics, Nutanix, Rubrik, ThoughtSpot, uh, these were started by Indian entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley with product development activities in India. And then another deal we've covered here at our publication, Vista Equity Partners, bought San Francisco-based Gainsight for $1.1 billion, which has a significant presence in parts of India. Other mentions, I want to say Freshworks Inc. and Druva Inc., a cloud data security company out of Sunnyvale, California. There's a Fresh to Home is another one. So are there any common denominators with these companies in terms of their ability to stand out from the crowd and achieve success? 
Absolutely. If you notice, first of all, is the credentials of the founders. They are highly educated, have strong engineering, mathematics, and technology backgrounds. Indian founders typically tend to be more technology or mathematics oriented, more than finance and business school oriented. So you see that distinct difference, which is very similar to what you see in Silicon Valley across the board. So that's one difference. And second thing that's common amongst all these companies is they're universally, these companies have access. They know how to get into consumer or businesses they have, which is a rare breed. Not all companies do. So access to markets and access to capital is very key. Third thing, if you look at these companies, many of them, including Nutanix, their actual solutioning and the technologies, deep tech, significant moat, significant barrier to entry for others. So this heavily IP driven. And finally, is their execution. If you look at all these companies, what you see is their ability to consistently grow the ARR quarter over quarter, year over year. So these are sort of the four key things that defines these companies distinctly different from the rest of the crowd. And another thing India does is that they have a kind of a national testing system where they're able to find the best minds in engineering and mathematics, right? That's right. That's right. And because India has a very strong history of engineering and mathematics, and it's a middle-class aspiration when you have roughly 400 million people aspiring to get these jobs. So when an engineer is picked in India for limited seats, when it is coming from 400 million, the competition is pretty intense and the quality tends to be naturally high. Okay, great. So let's drill down on some of season two's investments. You're looking at startups in the banking, financial services and insurance, healthcare, retail and logistics, and energy sectors. That's a pretty big universe. Are your targets mostly US-based companies or India-based companies? The way I look at Steve is we look for very, very good, very early stage companies. If you can get it out of India, that would be our preference because of the enterprise value of these companies. Indian companies are priced right. So that's the reason why we are focused. But almost all of those companies, they grow up in India, they get launched in India, they get launched in the companies in India, and most of them are artificial intelligence driven. The advantage of India is the data in any of Indian companies is so large that it will dwarf much of the Fortune 500 companies elsewhere, right? So artificial intelligence systems require large amounts of data and large amounts of learning. But once we use that, once we mature it, then they're ready to take on the world. So that's sort of the model that we look at. Start and groom in India, but grow and prosper globally. Okay, great. You also have a a relationship with McLaren Strategic Ventures. That's a component of season two. Can you talk about that element of your firm and how that works? I guess they're a consultancy? Yeah, you, you could add it. I mean, if you think about it, there are two components to create value, right? The first one is value creation. How do we find people to create value? And that's season two. We look for startup founders. We look for great ideas. We look for great technology. We look for great connections and frictionless business. So that's the value creation part, but that's not sufficient, Steve. We also have to figure out how to multiply this value. To multiply the value necessarily means how do we take it to market? How do we open the doors? How do we create domain layering and consulting layering on top of it? How do we create meta IPs, connecting multiple startups to create a larger solution? And how do we run and execute in the context of large companies? This is a pretty daunting thing for a B2B company to startup to take on their own. So we figured that instead of each B2B company figuring it out in their own way, why don't we create McLaren Strategic Ventures that provides this kind of an infrastructure for any startup within season two? So this is the, you know, if the two sides of the coin, right? You have 
Season two that looks at creation of value, we can McLaren strategic ventures that helps multiply the value. That's the idea. Okay, great. It's almost like an incubator in a sense. You know, you're sort of giving companies some of the support that they need to grow. Yeah, the best way to look at uh, McLaren is as a business accelerator. How right. do you accelerate your market? That's really what it is about. Okay, so we're talking about all the positives of India and, and the Indian entrepreneurs. It's all good stuff. What are some of the challenges for India's growth, you think? Of course, India has a lot of positives. They have the demographic dividend and the changes and the innovation, the entrepreneurship, all are positives. But as you said, right, there are a lot of challenges and people who are investing in India have to be aware of it. And there are many, and I'll talk about some of the key ones. The first and foremost is scaling Indian companies is an entirely different game from scaling US or European companies. Indian companies are very context-driven. Investors who have expectations of companies will build and grow. They don't find the same metrics, same milestones applicable in India, and they get confused. So understanding Indian context is very, very important, and it's a significant challenge if you don't do it well. The second thing is uh, the whole employee and talent base. While we have roughly three and a half, four million technology talent, just like in other countries, finding who is the best talented employee and who fits your company is not something you can do haphazardly. So understanding that employee strategy and keeping them in a heavily competitive environment is a big challenge in India. That's something that people underestimate. And the third thing is the regulatory environment, right? If you look at India, it stands, what, 77th out of 190 countries for ease of doing business. While in tech sector, some of these difficulties are eliminated. If I look at every startup, all the way from just getting legal incorporation, it is nothing like what you know in the US. It's incredibly cumbersome and long. And just confusion amongst tax policies, you know, especially with GST and all that, it can be quite heavy on startups. Significant work needs to be done to ease that. But there are workarounds and there is help available. But clearly, these are some of the challenges that you have to be aware of when you're investing in India. Okay, yeah, we have to have some of those things in here as well. So thanks for pointing that out. So let's drill down on how Season 2 Ventures works and some of their portfolio companies. Walk us through how you sourced Uvik Technologies. That's a startup with a founder who came up with a less expensive way for merchants to provide point-of-sale services to customers. And that company is projecting to make $5 million to $10 million in revenue uh, by 2022. So it's ramping up pretty quickly. It is, it is, Steve. I think it's a classic example. It's in payment sector in India, which is red hot. And really, the founder's idea was twofold. One is he looked at all these merchants who have to pay a significant monthly fee for just carrying point-of-sale terminals around and how cumbersome it is and how difficult it is, especially in remote areas. And he said, listen, why do we need this? You can convert your phone into a handheld POS, and it's just a software driver. And that was his first breakthrough. And second breakthrough is he said, hey, listen, look at the consumer side. The friction is you have to take your credit card and give it to somebody else who actually goes inside the shop, swipe it. It makes the consumers a little leery. What he did was he just figured out that you can do tap and pay and enable the NFC capability. And he combined these two to launch UVIC. And in the last several months, the firm has been quite successful getting to an annual revenue of close to $5 million. And we think this could be a very, very interesting company for the next decade. And this technology is applicable not only in India, but almost all developing countries, including Middle East, Asia, Pac, Latin America, and even actually in Europe. Okay, great. Here's another interesting one that you've invested in called Warehouse Now. 
It offers a similar service to Airbnb, except for renting warehouse space. I would think that would be a big draw right now during COVID when distribution is such a big factor. Absolutely. And the digitization and online revolution, Steve, what's it, what it's doing is they're helping new manufacturers and producers to come into play. You don't necessarily have to be a big guy, but then when it comes to them when you can produce, you have to find a global or national distribution. So what they really struggle is to find a distribution mechanism that is short term because they can't have a five-year contract. They want flexibility. They don't want to go through the big guys. So they're all looking for this flexible warehousing and distribution infrastructure. What he figured, the founder figured out is that a lot of the warehouses around the country are managed at less than 50% capacity. The same time, on the other hand, companies are struggling to find good distributors, good warehousing infrastructure, which is national in India. So he said, hey, if you can digitally aggregate these warehouses, basically fractional warehouses, and offer this at a lower cost, at a flexible way, so you don't have to sign a 10-year contract, you can really create a frictionless business that will take off. This company was launched about 12 months ago. And as you rightly said, this business already was at about 5 million ARR, and we think they would end up with about 10 or 15 million ARR next year. And that's an outstanding growth for the company, which is really less than a year and a half of <laughs> growth. And uh, now the COVID and the COVID vaccine distribution and cold chain, while the government of India is planning to do the launching, this company is hoping to get a big part of their work, big part of their warehousing need, because you have to do flexible warehousing to pull this off. So we're very, very excited. And again, this flexible warehousing model is the model of the future. Just like we didn't have enough hotels or enough houses to rent, and we created a virtual option, virtual warehousing is going to be the wave of the future. Okay, great. So I just want to point out that Sajin invested about 15 or 20 million of your own capital in season two ventures. So you've got some skin in the game as well, and you raised 100 million in total. What's next for season two? Uh, I guess you've been closing about one investment per month with about 1 million each to seed each company. You're expecting your new fund to include 20 to 25 startups with an average investment of $1 million to $3 million each and up to $5 million to $6 million at the high end. Where do you go from here? How many deals do you have in the pipeline, Sajin? Steve, I think it's a great question. We're very, very excited at the sheer availability of startups that is investable. That's one. So we find exciting companies in healthcare, in genomics, in in provider space, in medical devices. There's a tremendous amount of startups in that area. We find equally interesting startups in banking and insurance. Great area to invest. And of course, the supply chain and logistics. We talked about a couple of examples. So there is quite a bit of these companies. But as we are looking at beyond the first fund, we want to get even hyper-specialized around domains. So the next fund might be specialized around just healthcare, around just banking tax, because that each of those areas we find, uh, based on our investment experience, can we can bring in several hundred million dollars just on that single sector. So as you will see, the next funds will be focused on one domain at a time. Okay, great. And then so you think you'll be able to invest your first fund pretty quickly within the next couple of years, you think? I think we think about 24 months is a reasonable time frame for us to invest all our money there. Okay, well, we've had a great time getting to know Sajin Palai, managing partner of Season 2 Ventures. Uh, Sajin, thanks again for joining us. And Steve, thank you very much for the opportunity. This is Steve Jelson for the Deals Podcast, Behind the Buyouts. Thanks for joining us. 